You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Today on What She Said, I am thrilled to have Dr. Pamela Pometer as my guest. Pam is a Mi'kmaq citizen, a practicing lawyer, and a professor of Indigenous governance. With over three decades of experience in First Nation issues and social justice advocacy, she has become a renowned speaker, educator, and expert on Indigenous issues, both in Canada and around the world. But what truly stands out about Pam is her kindness and generosity. She gives so much of herself, her time, her expertise, and her heart to help others. At the same time, she remains fiercely protective of her culture and her community. Hearing her speak about her family and her people is a powerful reminder of why she is so passionate about her work. Today, we'll be discussing Indigenous resistance and resurgence and the importance of amplifying Indigenous voices and perspectives in our society. It's an honor to have Dr. Pamela Pometer with us today. So let's get started right now. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I am so pumped to be here. I I wanted to start with your book. Um, Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence. Can you tell us more about the inspiration behind this book and the message you hope to convey? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because the book really goes with another book that I wrote before that. It's Indigenous Nationhood, Empowering Grassroots Citizens. Both books are basically... Um, excerpts or the full articles or blogs like the best of from certain time periods. So the warrior life one uh, that you just asked me about is from the Trudeau time period and the indigenous nationhood one is from the Stephen Harper period. So you mean the the original Trudeau right? Sorry. Yeah oh no 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 like uh (laughs) Pierre Trudeau. (laughs) Oh so it's Justin okay. (laughs) Yeah yeah so Stephen Harper Justin Trudeau. Okay, okay. I just want to make sure what Trudeau we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And basically, it's just my short form writing on issues that were being dealt with during those time periods. So it could have been legal amendments, it could have been policy decisions, it could have been scandals, everything related to basically Indigenous peoples and social justice. Uh, And so the books were really meant to do two different things. Obviously, one is, hey, what's happening during the Harper and Trudeau era? But it was also an evolution of the underlying purpose of the book. So the first book, Indigenous Nationhood, was really about encouraging grassroots citizens to use their voice and speak out on things like blogs or media or anything else. Um, whether or not they were in mainstream media. And then the next book is really, okay, how do we take that using our voices and put it into action? Basically calls to action. Well, speaking of calls to action, (laughs) of the 94 calls to action that there were through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, only 13 have been completed. Um, You know, at this rate, I I was reading, it said it would take 42 years or until 2065 uh, to complete all of the calls to action. So, what are your thoughts on on moving this forward? How do we advance this faster? Well, that is 
basically political will. It is up to the powers that be, whoever is responsible for each one of those calls to action, because some of them are for government, but some of them are for universities and some of them are for, you know, journalism and things like that. So basically, everyone has to take up the call and fulfill their responsibilities and understand that although it kind of reads like a checklist, here's things you must do, they have long-term forever implications. So it's not like a university for example, could create a Indigenous language program in one year and then, okay, we're going to fund this for three years and then be done with it. Like, it's to do permanent changes, to try to undo or make reparations for all of the harms that happened in the past. Obviously, the governments are the worst offenders, but we all have a role to play. So we're all responsible about whether or not these things get carried out and have a long-term plan for it. Are there any particular actions that you feel we should be addressing though right now? The way I consider all of these issues, whether it's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, the National Inquiry into Murder and Missing, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, doesn't matter which one. Me personally, I think we should all be triaging. So which are the calls to action that speak specifically to life and death right now? And then which are the specific ones that speak to health, safety, and well-being, you know, even if it's not life and death. And then you could just kind of spread out from there, which are then, you know, education, which are then uh, political negotiations and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that you have to only do one at a time. We can do all of these things at the same time. However, where are we putting our urgency, our funding, and our greatest attention and resources to should always be life and death and then health, safety, and well-being. You've been um, recognized for your social justice advocacy, particularly for First Nations, Indigenous women, and children. You've dedicated your entire career to this work. And how have you seen progress being made in, in all of these areas? Or do you feel like perhaps there has been a rollback? That's a really good question. And it's obviously one of the most important questions. What progress have we seen? Uh, my focus and how I measure progress is not how many Native people do you see speaking in the media or how many meetings does the federal government have with national Indigenous organizations or even how many Canadians are talking about Indigenous issues because those are progress but a very superficial progress. I measure progress by the people on the ground. Have we, do we have less Native people in prison today? than when we started, say, 40 years ago, raising the alarm bells. In fact, we have a massive crisis. It is quadrupled over the last 40 years. Do we have less First Nations children in foster care than when we first started getting attention for this, you know, however many decades ago? No, in fact, we have the highest numbers ever. We have the highest numbers of murdered and missing. We have the highest numbers of everything that the public knows about now, that government has talked about now and made commitments to now, but everything continues to get worse. That's how I measure whether or not we have success. If I can walk in downtown Winnipeg and I don't see any of my native brothers and sisters, homeless and living on the streets or freezing to death. Those are the people by which we measure progress, not the stuff we see. Yeah, so this is definitely just what you've said sounds definitely more like regression as opposed to progression mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. this area. What's contributing to that? 
Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. So decades ago, everyone thought the solution to everything Indigenous was public education. And public education is important, right? You want people to know about it. It does a certain thing. You, you want Canadians and community members to put pressure on government for change. Um, all of those kinds of things are important. Um, but every survey that we've done in the last 10 years shows that the majority of Canadians know about residential schools, murder to missing, lack of water on reserve, violence, homelessness, you name it. But that hasn't translated into action. And that's my concern. We've done so much focus on education or awareness or sensitivity training that we haven't done anything to translate that into action. Now that you know better, how is it that you're going to do better? Here's the things you need to do. How do you make a lifelong commitment to that? And the reason why I'm pointing out Canadians is because often we often look at governments and say it's the government's job. But my first response is, well, who do you think is working in government? Who, who, is, who is working on the police forces? Who's working at hospitals? Who are social workers? Who are gang members? They're all Canadians, right? So we need to be speaking to the people who are in these roles have, because honestly, Canadians have the numbers, the relative wealth, education, power, and influence to change anything they want to. But have they? And are they committed to and make a lifelong commitment to that? And some, yes. We have growing support, growing numbers of allies, but w not in the kind of numbers that would literally change everything that we need to be changed. So I want to move to social media for a second then, if I, if I might, because you and I are the same age. I was stalking you, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I know you, um, you remember life pre-internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so and but you're really active in social media your blog indigenous nationhood has gained a lot of attention has been published as a book um so what role does social media play in the f the continuing fight for indigenous rights and is there a role that social media is playing on this regression we were talking about previously Ooh, yes, both sides of uh, social media. So I think we can say, without a doubt, there are lots of problems to social media, right? Uh, especially people who say aren't used to using it, or worse, people who use it strategically in negative ways. We know there's rabbit holes of misinformation and hate groups and everything else, conspiracy theories. So that serves as a distract, like a, a significant distraction for people who use those venues to get their information or news or analysis because, you know, some people don't even have TVs anymore, right? Everything's online. At the, at, the same, at the same time, though, I think the benefits outweigh the negatives in the sense that social media has changed everything. Prior to social media, not just the internet, but social media specifically, the only people who had a public say in anything were politicians, uh, heads of organizations, and the me mainstream media had control over every message, whose voice got out there and whose didn't. We, we, weren't, we didn't even exist. Who would ever have thought of talking to a grassroots person about something political or legal? No, it had to be a legal expert from a very prominent university, you know, the same go-to people. Social media? more than leveled the playing field. Now the tables are reversed. Where do mainstream media get information about important, significant 
social issues or environmental issues. It's because they're following activists and advocates. They're seeing in real time photos and videos and commentary of Facebook Live, YouTube Live, you name it. They get information secondhand from the actual people on the ground who are who are sharing that information firsthand without getting money for it without any corporate influence and I think it's changed everything that's you know the amount of information that we have access to is something unprecedented also on the social movement front of things or advocacy front we can connect and strategize and plan in a way that we couldn't before I mean I was from the days when we had to have telephone calls or we had to send fax, fax sheets, or we had to, you know, drive 20 people to a, a van to get to places and have meetings in person. Like everything has changed. We can do it. Uh, it's, it's also made it accessible for people who say uh, weren't on the front lines because they were in a wheelchair. They couldn't go to the front lines before. Now they can be just as much a part of the revolution because we have this online access where if you have a hearing disability, well, you can get closed captions, you know? So it's broadened it out for so many more people that didn't have a say or didn't have a part in social justice. And I mean, obviously, it, it just expands how many people know about these issues mm -hmm. when it's on every social feed, which is a really good thing. But then there is, a, as we said, that pushback mm -hmm. of the disinformation and misinformation that comes out and the hate accounts um, mm. the, do you get a uh, significant amount of hate on the social media that you post? Oh, most definitely. And, and you know, you can, you can pretty much predict which kinds of YouTube videos or podcasts or blogs or anything that I do online, even mainstream media, which will get the hate. It's almost always when I'm speaking about white supremacy or hate groups, almost always guaranteed or pipelines. And the vast majority of people who are angry are almost always men. The emails that I get from are almost always men. Uh, the only exception to that is when I'm talking about, you know, racism and violence and policing. Uh, it tends to be the wives of police officers who are cranky at me. But that being said, I think it's just about being strategic about that. I never repost what they're saying because why would I want to send racism and violence and hatred to everyone else just to prove that I'm getting hate mail? It, it it elevates these, you know, user one, two, three, four from having zero followers to having 10,000 followers who now want to, you know, find out what this guy is doing and what other hate he's creating, but you're giving him a platform. Why on earth would I do that? I block and delete, block and delete, block and delete. I do that as well, but it's really interesting that you say this because... There right now, currently, and this is not just an indigenous issue, it's very, a, a women's issue are being attacked online. Um, mm -hmm. And, and some women are calling them out. They're sharing these, these, these um, uh, statements and comments that are being made at them, which is on one side, I think eye opening for people to see the amount of hate, but on the other side, it's adding fuel uh, mm -hmm. and promoting that narrative of, of hatred, I guess, on the internet, which is it's a really hard one. I don't know how to how we address that, especially right now with women, because it's so intense, it seems. We've seen a number of jur female journalists in Canada being hounded um, relentlessly right now. And it's alarming. And I, I don't know how we're going to to handle this one. And, and so I guess to say I have no answer. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's definitely a hard one, but why on earth would we want to make them famous? Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, in the old days, mainstream media had this unwritten rule that they never gave platforms to the KKK or neo-Nazis or anything else. They just... It was just that unwritten rule. You don't do it. You don't give them a platform. They're not legitimate. Uh, they commit crimes and they're hateful. Well, nowadays, these kinds of groups, these hate groups, are being posed as the balanced opposite of uh, someone who promotes human rights. Well, we have to have balanced coverage, so let's just talk to this hate group over here and see why we should listen to them. So it's already bad enough that mainstream media has allowed them now to have a platform at a higher level. But if we do it, like, they're just so excited about that. They get their name out there. They get their message out there. That's how they recruit. I mean, this is the kind of research I do. That's literally how they recruit. And they want you to be upset. And they want you to be fearful. And they want you to make your story about them. And while I understand that we, we want to call them out um, and deal with them, there's ways of doing that. You know, you block and delete 90% of these people and there's no problem. For the ones that are persistent or particularly threatening, there's other avenues to deal with that without giving them what they want, which is triggering the algorithm. Because the more a journalist shares, hey, look at this hateful message I got, They've triggered the algorithm to give them more of that. They've triggered the algorithm so that all of the followers that read that will also get more of that content. We can use the algorithm strategically to block and delete and not read and follow any of that stuff so that all we're getting is the good stuff and not the rabbit holes of hatred and conspiracy theories. So, I mean, that that's just my opinion. Um, obviously, other people think differently, but it's... Who wants to see that every day in their feed? Oh, look at this other email. Look at this other like Twitter post. And, and the other thing that people don't realize is that many of these messages come from social media farms. So those are the kind of farms where you have one guy and he has like a hundred cell phones taped to a wall and he just cut and pastes hate. And so you don't even know if you're dealing with like a real person who even knows you or cares about you, but they just keep recycling the same old things across multiple platforms. Why would you waste your time on those kind of troll farms or the bots? There's automatic bots that do these things too. You're not even arguing with a person. You're literally sharing the word of a bot. Why waste your time? I agree. And I'm at the point now where if I see a particularly vile or disgusting comment on somebody else's social media, I block that person preemptively. Yeah. <laughs> Just remove it from my feed. I don't want to see it anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and we should be able to, we should be at this point right now where we just block liberally and often and preemptively uh, yeah. for people who don't um, elevate the conversation in any way or have nothing to offer. So I, I'm, I'm curious though, because you do travel globally to talk about Indigenous issues here in Canada. How is that received outside of Canada? What do people think uh, when you travel globally? What are they thinking is happening here with Indigenous issues? In almost every instance, it is shock and awe because Canada has spent a great deal of money, time, effort, and PR to make it look like the best place to live on the world, that they're so committed to multiculturalism and human rights, they're the defender of human rights, they're out there calling out other countries committing genocide and human rights violations, and they should, every country should do that. 
Um, they're quite shocked to find out that Canada is guilty of genocide, that Canada has an Indian Act that's still telling Native people who's Native and who's not, that there's no clean drinking water, that they're incarcerating Native people faster than they can arrest them. Like they just, they're shocked to hear that because Canada hasn't been forthcoming. What I like though is that there's a ramification for that. So once they know better, I find uh, people, institutions in other countries, uh, organizations in other countries, even some other governments, uh, change their their way of thinking about Canada and start questioning Canada on what is doing, what is not doing, and holding them to account. For example, you know, Canada's found guilty of genocide of Indigenous women and girls has done nothing about it. Um, they didn't get their request for a seat on the UN Security Council, which is a very powerful and esteemed seat. And I would like to think that it's because of our lobbying behind the scenes and all of the information. Like I was traveling to I don't know how many countries saying, listen, do you want to put a, a state that is a perpetrator of ongoing genocide on the UN Security Council when your whole purpose is to keep all people on the planet safe and secure and free from violence. You will have no credibility. And trust me, you don't have the greatest of credibility right now because of mistakes you've made. And so there are countries that are like, yeah, okay, you're right. We'd rather have a small country somewhere else than a country that's guilty of genocide, admits it's guilty of genocide, but then does nothing about it. Are you looking for authentic, high-quality, and handcrafted seal fur and leather products created by Canadian Indigenous fashion designers and artists? Look no further than Proudly Indigenous Crafts and Designs, or Pick and D for short. Their e-commerce platform celebrates and showcases the skill and creativity of Indigenous fashion designers and artists. These innovative artists combine traditional sewing techniques with a contemporary approach to create modern and timeless accessories, footwear, clothing, and home decor products. And when you buy from Pick and D, you are not just getting a beautiful and authentic seal product, you're also supporting Indigenous communities. Proudly Indigenous products are natural, eco-friendly, and of the highest quality. So visit ProudlyIndigenousCrafts.com today and experience the beauty of Indigenous craftsmanship. Pick and D, proudly showcasing Indigenous fashion and supporting Indigenous communities. Let's move on to Idle No More. You were one of the original spokespeople and organizers of that movement. And how has that evolved and changed since that time? What I love about Idle No More is it changed so many things. We went from having a few Native voices in the media or them caring about our stories to this 180 flip where you can't find a day in Canada where Native stories and Native voices aren't being represented in radio, TV, you know, everything. So it, it's also helped educate the media, which is, you know, one of the keys to us getting to the Canadian public because they're still very much an older generation watching TV, listening to radio. That's where they're getting their content. The other thing that I really liked about the media, or sorry, I don't know more, is that it was organic. It was not an organization. It didn't have funding. It wasn't controlled by any political party. No one got elected to Idle No More. No one had the copyright over it. It was organic. So basically we were saying, here's all the things that are happening under the Harper government. It's threatening your democracy, Canadians. It's threatening our waterways. It's all of these things that we were upset about. And 
then people took that in their own community and said, okay, well, we can't address all of it, but here's what we're going to do. So there might have been uh, teach-ins about what's happening in the foster care system and trying to educate Canadians that way. There might have been uh, leaflets being handed out to drivers going by. There are protests, round dances, uh, blockades, TV sessions, like uh, on online YouTube video sessions, like literally our first YouTube or like our first I don't know more presentation was on YouTube. You can still watch it on YouTube. So the fact that it was organic, people took it and ran with it the way they wanted to, which really upset both government and media because they have like a playbook. How do you address when there's a protest over here? There's a usual, you know, speaking points and things like that. Well, they couldn't find a leader. They couldn't find one specific issue. And they couldn't keep track of all of the things that were happening across Canada all at the same time. So literally, they didn't have the playbook for that. And you could see that they didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to handle it. And those are the kinds of innovations and changes and evolutions we need to make in social movements. Because they have a playbook for everything we do. We need to keep shaking it up. And I don't know more shook it up to such an extent that the media is better. I think universities are better. I think uh, our relationships within our communities are better. And we have far more ally partnerships. We've effectively merged social movements. So I don't know more. You had Black Lives Matter marching with us. And then when Black Lives Matter was prominent because of something that was happening currently, we marched with them. You know, so there's a way to merge our movements and follow the one that needs to take the lead in that moment. And I think that's really changed our family of of social justice people. You mentioned, uh, you know, it's changed universities and you have four university degrees. You have a BA in Native Studies, a doctorate in law and uh, Indigenous, sorry, in Indigenous and Constitutional Law. So how have your academic studies influenced what you do and what advice do you have for young Indigenous people who want to pursue higher education? I would tell young Indigenous people, listen, don't undervalue the education you get in your families or in your communities or nations, clans, villages, houses, whatever it is, because that traditional education, whether it be language, custom, worldviews, values, how you analyze things, the things that we think are important in life, they ground you to go into post-secondary education and deal with what is still very much a white mostly male institution with lots of racism, lots of sexism, lots of misinformation. (laughs) You know, politics are real in universities. And while there's lots of universities trying to change, lots of colleges trying to change, some that are doing really well and have been for several decades, there you will still come across uh, everything that you can imagine in courses from students, from advisors, uh, within the curriculum that's wrong. And you need that armor that you get from your, from your culture and identity and value and morals to use what you learn, even the bad stuff, and, and turn that and use that as a tool to bring down that bad stuff. So, I mean, law school was painful. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's Canadian law. It's the common law. It all comes from, you know, overseas um, with no respect for Native rights. But in that, I learned how, how, do, how do, you know, Canadians 
challenge Canadian laws? How do they defeat Canadian laws? How do they amend Canadian laws? How do they bring down things that are wrong? So you can use it as a tool then to take down the system that is so racist and oppressive and and achieve justice, social justice from that. And so, you know, I'm sure it's much better now. Like I look at all the programs now and there's like indigenous language programs and there's, you know, native student societies. And I just, oh man, I wish I had all that (laughs) when I went to university. But that said, um, you know, I think we're making improvements in that regard and, and hopefully that just continues, but never discount Um, your traditional form of education I think that's what grounds you in life tell me about your your childhood then for for a bit did you have that traditional education oh my gosh I had it with a vengeance (laughs) and I say that (laughs) lovingly because I had eight sisters and three brothers and the and they're almost all older than me and they were all very politically active socially active they were protesters and organizers they were holding community information sessions they were negotiating with governments they worked or volunteered at every native organization you can possibly imagine they were countering unjust native laws and that was my childhood So, you know, imagine being a little girl and you're like, you know, I think I'm going to go play with my dolls. Nope, you're coming to this protest. I don't know what it's about. I don't know what it means. I don't know why people are upset. But over time, I've come to understand why they did that so that it wouldn't be a job, wouldn't be a volunteer thing. It's an inherent part of our identity, you know, and I've learned that you can't call yourself Mi'kmaq unless you are contributing to the Mi'kmaq nation and the well-being of Mi'kmaq people and you have to make it your life and so I just followed them and then you know when you get older it's like oh I want to be like my brothers I want to be like my sisters and so I've been striving to be as wonderful as they have been my whole life I'm sure I'll never ever achieve that but I am all the good things that I do because of them any of the bad things those are my mistakes but I I love them for that kind of education you're making me emotional here if people can't see this but like I I am overwhelmed with emotion just listening to you talk about your family because it's so loving and I just I love hearing that and if anybody's wondering why you're an activist I guess that's why (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, exactly I mean I just think about it all the time yeah the learn it's it becomes a part of you it's your blood So you don't know any other life. You only know, how do you care about people? How do you care about the environment? How do you protect animals? How do you make sure everybody is safe and healthy? Like that just becomes your mission. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, going speaking about safe and healthy, um, this is what she said. So if we could for a few minutes, I'd like to focus on um, Indigenous women, particularly the missing, um, murdered and Indigenous women uh, and, and, you were mentioning, I was watching a video you did about the incarceration levels of Indigenous women. Can you speak to what the current situation is in Canada in, in, the, in regards of those two things and how non-Indigenous people can help, um, I guess, clean up this mess that's been created? Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking to know that this is happening every single day. I'm so thankful that you asked that question because within the whole buffet of human rights issues and environmental rights issues, the one that gets the least amount of attention 
are people who are incarcerated wrongly and people who are incarcerated and treated poorly in prisons and jails because most people have this belief, oh, well, you wouldn't be in prison if you didn't do anything wrong. And that is categorically wrong. Statistically, all the social science data shows that. I mean, it's, I don't know how many reports, inquiries, commissions, uh, coroner's reports, you name it, that have said every step of the Canada's justice system is racist and not that kind of unconscious bias. Oh, I didn't know I was targeting and beating up a Native person. But the actual conscious targeting, profiling that the justice system does, you know, obviously it starts primarily in with police forces. And then they're the feeder group to put you into a, a, a system that doesn't respect Indigenous rights, that treats Indigenous peoples differently and worse. For example, you're far more likely to be targeted, profiled, brutalized, sexually assaulted, um, and arrested by police if you're Indigenous. You're far more likely, once you are arrested, to have multiple charges and worse charges than a non-Native person in that situation. Then, because you're Indigenous, you're far more likely to be convicted than a non-Native person, and then you're far more likely to be incarcerated in higher levels of security. So in the old days, we used to think these things called Gladue reports, where you make a report to the court and say, listen, this person was trafficked as a child, they were in and out of foster care, they've been abused their whole lives, they didn't get any programs and services. Take that into account when we're thinking about what the rehabilitation plan is for that person. Instead of doing that, even those Gladue reports have been weaponized against Native people. If you go in with a story about what happened to you in your childhood, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to maximum security and you're not going to get rehabilitation programs because they're going to predict that you're going to be dangerous and hard to deal with in prison. So everything about the justice system, you're less likely to get parole. Um, all of it comes together. So the situation where we are right now with women, for the first time ever, we are, for of all the women that are in federal institutions, so in federal prisons, 50% are Indigenous women. Indigenous women make up less than 7% of the population, yet they are 50% of those in federal institutions. And although that sounds bad, and it is because it continues to increase every year, that doesn't include provincial jails and holding cells. You know, so in some of those provincial jails and holding cells, you can have in women's ones up to 80% Indigenous women. That's just ludicrous. When you go to corrections, if you look at all of the kids that are in corrections, so let's just look at all the little girls that are in youth corrections, you can have 98% Indigenous girls. Now, unless all Indigenous people are terrorists and evil and violent, it is very clear that not only is this system racist and targeting and neglectful and breaching human rights violations, but they're not doing anything about it. And that's the crisis because it will only get worse. And then you condemn people. If you take a child and put them in foster care, they're far more likely to end up in youth corrections than ever graduate high school. 
If you put them in youth corrections, they're far more likely to end up in prison as an adult. Once they're in prison, you're far more likely to gather more and more charges inside of prison because people discriminate against you and not get any programs. I mean, if you ever get out, by the time you get out, you've effectively served a life sentence because you're not going to be able to get a job. You're not going to be able to volunteer anywhere. You're not going to be able to do anything to contribute to society. Why on earth are we condemning our kids to this, this future? I, so I, I don't even know where to start with that. What can we do then to change this system? particularly non-Indigenous people who need to be participating in this? What organizations are there that we can lend our support to, lend our voice to? Who, mm-hmm. do we, who do we speak to? So I always tell people, especially if they're new at this or have been trying to, you know, thinking about what can they do? Um, always start local. What is your local First Nations saying they need right now? So in one local First Nation, maybe they don't have uh, a problem with incarceration rates for adults, but they have one with youth corrections. What are they saying they need? Do they need you to sign a petition? Do they need you to donate to a legal fund? Do they need you to advocate in Parliament or send letters to the Senate? Like, follow the lead of Indigenous peoples about what they need and want in your local area. Because obviously, what's happening in the Maritimes is nowhere near as a crisis level as what's happening in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, for example. I mean, those are crisis level incarceration provinces. And and, and I'd also say each person has their own sphere of influence. You might be a teacher. You might be a police officer. You might be a doctor. You might be a lawyer. Like wherever you work, Wherever you can exercise that sphere of influence to steer people towards dealing with this issue, then do that. And I never ask anyone to jeopardize their job or jeopardize their personal safety ever. Advocacy is about living another day to be able to continue to advocate. So wherever you are in your sphere of influence in a safe way, You need to forever advocate on behalf of those who are not getting any of the attention or whose voices are dismissed. And we need to hold institutions to account. It's generally only Canadians when they get really upset and maintain issues in the media that issues will be dealt with within institutions. Policing is one of the worst ones and nothing ever gets done simply because we've shown some statistics. Hey, look at how many Native people you killed. In fact, you kill more Native people than anybody else. Uh, Unarmed Native people, people who hadn't committed any crimes. Here's all the sexual assaults you've done of Native women and little girls. Here's all the cops involved in child porn and human trafficking. No one will deal with that unless Canadians, A, are aware of it, and B, take action to say, you know what, I know we hold cops, you know, uh, as heroes because of the work that they do, but a cop can be a serial killer and a soccer coach at the same time. We need to weed out the problems and that way clean up these institutions so that we can rely on them, so that we can restore their hero status. But so long as Canadian society or institutions like policing or healthcare or uh, corrections officials allow that poison to continue, then there will be less and less confidence in public institutions by Canadians, but more and more Native people and Black people and women who are hurt by it. So 
Canadians have the power. Sometimes Canadians are like assistant deputy ministers, or they are the CEO of a business, or they they have like big powers of influence. Why not use those for good instead of the stuff that gets you good PR? You know, I'm going to make a donation to this university and this uh, lecture hall is going to be named CEO ABC after me. And then you get like good out of it. Real good, real social justice is when you give because it's the right thing to do and not about accolades and not about, ooh, you know, if I support prisoners, you know, maybe I won't be able to sell, I don't know, baby clothes anymore or something. Like it's, there's ways to do this and, and make everybody happy at the same time. We just have to be strategic about it. Considering all that you do every day uh, to fight for justice and in fight for Indigenous rights, how do you protect your own peace? How do you not get bogged down by the very heavy weight that you are carrying? Another really good question. There's, there's really a multitude of things that I do. So I, I actually get a lot of fulfillment from the work that I do because the work that I do and the people that I work with are, is the hope. You know, so when I see land defenders on the front lines defending territory or water protectors protecting water or, you know, people out there protecting First Nation kids in care or people in prisons, then I know it's okay and we're going to be okay because we're going to get the job done. There's still people that care. If I didn't see anyone, if I if there wasn't anyone that I could work with on any of these issues, that would be a cause of much stress and concern and loss of hope. So thank goodness we have warriors on the ground. The other thing is that the people in social justice movements, for the most part, you know, not to stereotype, end up becoming your really close friends, like brothers and sisters, because they're going through what you're going through. We're all strategizing for the same thing. And when things get really hard, like during, you know, unmarked graves, there were times when I felt like I just couldn't do another media interview, like my voice would break or I would start crying or if we're dealing about little children committing suicide, those tend to be my weaknesses and I have a really hard time with that. So that's when other activists will lift you up and say, oh, you know what, we're going to do this for you. And then you just take a break over here and then we just kind of switch each other off so that we're not carrying it all. And then the other thing is really just personal stuff. I just... I'm so thankful for my family that I have a huge family. I love my kids. I go motorcycling with my son or doing archery with my son or walking the dogs, playing with my dogs. I mean, dogs are healers. Everyone should have a dog. And in the summertime, that's major regeneration because that's powwow season. That means not only do I get to go home and hang out with all my community, but there's you get to go and travel to every other community. And it's eating food and gathering and drumming and singing and happiness and insider jokes and laughing about life. And that, it's almost like it fills up your gas tank for what's coming in the future months. And that's, like, I'm so thankful for that. But I am so thankful for you. You've been an absolute delight to chat with, and I thank you for everything you do. Uh, is there anywhere you would like to direct people before we close out this podcast? Uh, places they can go to read more, learn more, people they should follow perhaps on social media, aside from you, obviously. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, you can go to pampalmeter.com, 
basically all my educational YouTube videos, my adult podcast, my kids podcast, everything I've ever written, uh, links to important reports that you should know about. Um, I think I have a list of important Indigenous writers. And if you go through the people that I follow on my Twitter, for example, you will see everyone that you should follow, basically, because I have a small follow list so that I can refer people to it and say, here's all the people you should follow. So do that and absorb what's good for you. Some people are listeners, some are watchers, some are readers, um, some need to know more. Do that, and it links you out to everybody else doing great work. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pam. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.